Okay, so we're on the air? Yeah, Kevin's not with us yet. Okay, we'll yeah. give Kevin a chance to get with us, and uh, I'm going to send him uh, all the details about how his friends can log on the show now that we've actually got the show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That's my fault. Uh, I don't know. Technology is our burden. <laughs> anyway, we're going to have Kevin Gregg on here hopefully in a few minutes. Kevin's kind of an interesting guy. He's thinking out of the box for quite some time. Uh, I've been on a show with him that someone else had set up on Blog Top uh, a year or so ago. I, I lose track of time. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, if we get him connected again, we'll... Uh, We'll probably find uh, uh, him an interesting uh, individual to have as one of our first guests, and hopefully we'll get some of these uh, clicks and glitches out of the, our system uh, as time goes on. But uh, Kevin uh, has a number of websites. Uh, one of the one that, the one that he presents most of the time is. Um, uh, Bible, uh, actually, I can't remember it right offhand. I'm sending messages out. <laughs> and, uh, it's Bible Bet. Uh, I've got it here open. Uh, here it is. Uh, it's called anarchistbiblebet.com. And on it, he, uh, offers a bet. That uh, uh, our home study course is going to persuade you to become an anarchist and join our movement to repeal the Constitution and abolish the government of the United States. If we're wrong, we will pay you $1,000. And that's his Bible bet challenge. And of course, if you said that to the average guy on the street, they wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. Anarchists, anarchists, what is that? Uh, well, I'm sure when we get Kevin on, he'll talk about what an anarchist is. Uh, there's a few other things I'd like to mention as we're waiting for him to log in. He's back on, but go ahead. Okay, anyway, well, I'll introduce him in a minute. Uh, is uh, Our blog talk didn't happen this morning either, another technical glitch. Somehow the blog talk moved me over to Samoa and... <laughs> scheduled for 7.30. It actually scheduled me four hours later, so instead of having a warm-up to this show, we'll we'll have a after-math uh, breakdown of something. We'll have the show anyway. I don't have anything else scheduled at that particular time, and we'll, maybe we'll recap some of the things that we talk about in this show. But anyway, as we're getting these glitches out, we've got uh, Kevin online now, so I'm just going to introduce Kevin Craig and ask him uh, to introduce himself. I told him a little bit about your anarchistbiblebet.com uh, when we first came on, Kevin, but uh, I'm going to let you do the talking for a little bit. 
Well, let's see. I could uh, go back a few years just by way of personal introduction. I was uh, personally tutored by um, a man named R.J. Rushdooney, who's sort of known as the patriarch of the Christian Reconstruction Movement. So that gives you sort of an idea of where I'm coming from, the Christian Reconstruction angle. And uh, let's see, I studied law in California. I passed the California bar exam, but they would not give me a license to practice law because my allegiance to God is greater than my allegiance to the government. And if the Constitution ever said uh, you need to kill off all the Jews or all the Muslims or all the Christians at Waco or whatever, I would have to obey God rather than man. So they said, well, then you can't take the oath to support the Constitution. Uh, I went to court with that, but I eventually lost. Uh, they said, actually, there's a, there's a, well, to, to go back a hundred years, in 1892, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that America was a Christian nation. This was when the court was fairly conservative, and they were sort of uh, trying to guard against the rise of Darwinism and secularism that they saw in their day. So they gave a little history lesson on America and why all of our charters and constitutions are based on the Christian religion. But that case was tossed out in the 20th century, and the court uh, turned around and said, there's allegiance to the government. If you want to become an American citizen, you want to become an attorney, if you want to become a politician, even if you want to, if you want to teach in a public school, all public school teachers sign at the bottom of their application a little thing that says, I'm loyal to the Constitution, or something like that. They don't necessarily raise their right hand toward heaven and put their left hand on a Bible and say, so help me God, I'll obey the Constitution. But they do declare, some, in some sense, their allegiance. The Supreme Court said if you want any of those jobs and you want to take the oath to support the Constitution, then your allegiance to the Constitution must be unqualified. That was the court's word, unqualified. And they specifically referenced the Holy Trinity case back in 1892, which declared that America was a Christian nation. But they said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, but your allegiance has to be unqualified. We, can't, we just can't go around letting people into the government who aren't prepared to obey everything the government says. And then about 10 years later, they had a case out of Illinois of a man who passed the Illinois bar exam, wanted to become an attorney. But he said, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. And he basically wanted to uh, become a defense attorney. He wanted to defend people against those who were wielding the power of government as a sword against his client. Uh, because, but he, he did not believe in using the government as a sword against other people because he was more or less well, sort of a pacifist in, in, in thinking. And uh, anyway, he believed in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Illinois Bar said, if you can't believe in the Sermon on the Mount and be a lawyer, I mean, we're all about taking vengeance and getting the, po the pound of flesh. So they said, no, you can't be a lawyer. He appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he lost. Now, when I read that case, I said, you know, this is, uh, this is a case that, that, that points the finger right at me because the fact pattern in this case is just about identical to the way I think. So I told the California State Bar, We've got a precedent. We've got a conflict. We've got a problem here. We've got a Supreme Court case that says Christians cannot become attorneys, that Christians can't be oath to support the Constitution. The State Bar said, well, then you're toast, pal. And that's when I went all the way. Uh, well, I went to the U.S. Supreme Court, but uh, the, last, the last court that really issued an opinion was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they said, you know, they upheld the Federal District Court in Los Angeles that said, based on that case, um, in the mid-20th century, Christians can't become um, attorneys, and so you, you're just too bad for you. 
So that was, I think, very interesting. I don't think most people realize that you cannot become an American citizen, you can't become an attorney, you can't become a politician or a public school teacher if your allegiance to God is greater than your allegiance to the government. And I also founded a nonprofit organization. Now, some people have criticized me for filing uh, corporate papers with the government, getting a tax-exempt status, but my tax-exempt corporation is called Vine and Fig Tree. The purpose of the, of the corporation is to uh, allow people to make tax-deductible donations so they don't have to pay income tax on it, and then that money is used to uh, try to accelerate the fulfillment of Micah Chapter 4, the prophecy which talks about are beating our swords into plowshares and everyone dwelling safely under his own vine and fig trees. And I learned later that that passage and others like it in the Bible, there are quite a few, uh, were George Washington's favorite Bible verses, according to the Library of Congress. So anyway, um, I've developed a, a fairly extensive web presence. Um, I, I also run for Congress, even though, of course, if I should ever, um, in the unlikely event that I would win, I'm sure the Republican Party... Uh, that's a very, I, 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 I'm running in a very conservative Republican district, and if I were to actually win, the Republican Party would file a lawsuit in federal court seeking an injunction to prohibit me from taking the oath of office. And, uh, but, you know, I don't expect to win. It's more of an educational effort. But I have, I think, one of the largest campaign websites on the Internet, and that's at kevincraig.us. And it's a pretty ugly little website, but it's uh, got hundreds and hundreds of pages. Pick an issue. And I try to set forth what I believe is a Christian, um, a vine and fig tree kind of Christian uh, position on each of those issues. And uh, there's also a blog at blog.stephencraig.us. And well, you've already mentioned the Anarchist Bible. That, that, that website links to quite a few other websites. And uh, it's, a real, it's a real web of vine and fig tree type websites out there. However, that anarchist Bible bed is not good right now because I don't have $1,000 because last month my home was destroyed by a tornado. I'm still recovering from that. I'm standing right now in the kitchen of a really, well, of an of a utterly empty house, with, which I think I'm going to be living in for the next six to eight months while rebuilding takes place. So I haven't got my act together on this end, and I don't have any money to, I, I don't take on wagers unless I have $1,000 in the bank account that I can pay off the bet in the unlikely event that I should actually lose the bet, which I don't think I will, because I think the, the case for anarchism from a biblical perspective is overwhelming, and most people just have never even thought about it. But once they think about it, they go, um, yeah, that might be right, and then they don't know what to do. So anyway, there's some background and an update on current events, and uh, where do you want to go from here? Okay. Well, we're uh, I'm actually on your KevinCraig.us page, and I noticed one of the first things that you say on that is liberty under God is a philosophy that made America the most prosperous and most admired nation in history. America is now bankrupt and despised even by former admirers. Um, most people still think that America is this great nation, or the United States, they now refer to a United States and America as if they're almost synonymous terms, and of course they're not. Uh, America's a continent includes Canada and Mexico, uh, and even South America, if you want to include that. But uh, there is this thing called the United States, and you mentioned the Constitution in your 
in your uh, Bible bet introduction, you you talk about uh, the Constitution um, being repealed. I think that was it. I'm not sure where I read it now. <laughs> uh, you're right. You have a very extensive website, and uh, uh, but somewhere in there you talk about uh, repealing the Constitution. Uh, a lot of people would find that horrible. And of course, you I wouldn't want to repeal the Constitution and let the the corporate government that's now running things loose without any kind of reins. But evidently, you find something wrong with the Constitution, if I'm correct, because uh, I can't find out where I read it. But I was reading a lot of stuff, and I can't find my way back to it. Uh, we have a book, Contracts and Constitution. Sagan, it is on that. I think it's on the Anarchist Bible Bet, but it's elsewhere, okay. too. Oh, yeah, it says, all right, right there at the top, it says movement to repeal the Constitution and, and abolish the government. Yeah, you would want to abolish the government of the United States at the same time because what little power the Constitution has of reining that government into control, um, that's all you've got for reins. It's pretty much operating without any reins right now, and it's become quite a beast. And anyway, as I was saying in the Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, we take a look at the Constitution, and we actually determine uh, nothing against the individuals who um, wrote it. I'm not trying to pick on them. They did the best with what they understood. We don't consider it to be a Christian document. Uh, we think that it violates the four, if not the five, basic precepts that are laid down in the Bible for creating a government and a constitution and uh, some sort of leader who can exercise authority and uh, maybe we'll talk about that later but what's your thoughts on why are we repealing the constitution and you know also i'll mention most of our listeners are probably pretty up to date and they're going to track with you but you can uh, uh, make your answer as simple as possible <laughs> Uh, for those who might be finding all this rather shocking for the first time they hear it. <laughs> right. Well, I think that if we were to be able to transport the men who signed the Constitution into our day, into the 21st century, they would say that we are not in any meaningful sense being governed by the Constitution. The government is not in any meaningful sense being restrained or reined in by the Constitution. And everyone who signed the Constitution would say we need to I agree. Uh, yeah. The, also, the, the, your talk about uh, how they won't let you become an attorney if your loyalty is first to God. And then you mentioned that George Washington, some of the verses on uh, the vine and the fig tree are George Washington's favorite verses. Uh, it's always been my contention of George Washington, uh, Patrick Henry, uh, even Benjamin Franklin, uh, maybe even Hamilton would be shocked at what has turned out to be the government of the United States. Uh, uh, Hamilton might be impressed by all the technology, but uh, and, and as well as Ben Franklin, but when they start seeing what America has actually become, uh, they would be ashamed. Uh, uh, I think Patrick Henry would probably say, I told you so, but uh, uh, the reality is, is that the people are still living on the laurels of these somewhat great men of the past, yet in reality, they're absolutely contradicting what these men as individuals stood for way back 200-some years ago. Um, but anyway, uh, the uh, 
the separation that you felt when they wouldn't let you become an, a, an attorney, um, you actually probably can't even be an American citizen or a U.S. citizen, let's put it that way. It might be a better term. Uh, by their standards. So what kind of status would you be looking at? Well, How would you I, describe I'm, Ameri- I'm a U.S. citizen by birth, but if you want to become a naturalized citizen, there are actually a, quite a few cases of people who were who announced that their allegiance to God was greater than their allegiance to the Constitution, and they were denied citizenship. So that's a, that's a pretty clear position, that if your allegiance to God is greater than your allegiance to the Constitution, actually, even if your allegiance to your own conscience is greater than your allegiance to the government, you cannot become a U.S. citizen. And there are court cases on that. So, right. And, and I, going back to Hamilton, I think you, you're qualified that very well. I don't know whether Hamilton would like our government or not. If you've read Tom DiLorenzo's book, Hamilton's Curse, Hamilton sort of looked at the Constitution and, and sort of supported it, but, you know, behind his back he said, our lawyers can get around this. And he had, he had other objectives than simply preserving, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson's uh, yeoman agrarian kind of uh, vision of America. So I don't right. know whether Hamilton would be against it, but I, I agree with you that everyone else would be totally against our government for two reasons. Number one, it's a tyranny, and you can tell that the, Const- I mean, the Declaration of Independence says, that we not only have a right, but a duty to abolish any government that becomes a tyranny. And by their actions, they defined tyranny as any government that becomes more intrusive than the government of Britain under King George III. And that was a, a, a very generous and compassionate and laid-back libertarian government compared to the government we have today. They just, there wasn't that, when, when the Declaration of Independence speaks of swarms of officers, the actual state of affairs was maybe dozens of customs agents in the in the big cities. I mean, most people never never saw a, a British agent. It wasn't it wasn't that tyrannical compared to the uh, um, omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent regulation of the federal government today. Plus, they were even Franklin operating in a Christian worldview, very very sympathetic to Christianity, and they would be absolutely appalled at how anti-Christian our government has become. And the problem with the Constitution, it didn't, it didn't anchor the government down expressly enough, although it's there, but it didn't, it didn't preclude the rise of secular humanists who could take over the Constitution. So they would be, all of them, appalled at how atheistic and anti-Christian our government has become. Right. The, the, uh, that's the thing is I think that you know, I don't really know Hamilton personally. I know that he certainly had a different agenda than many of the other uh, men that were involved in uh, the creation of the uh, United States Constitution. But uh, I think that even he might be shocked at the loss of freedom, the total swarms of officers that we are dealing with today, the, uh, where you can't do anything except by the permission of the government, and it's meddling in almost every aspect. It was common knowledge back then that men were seeking to actually own land in fee simple that was untaxable by any government agent. And they knew that that was important because only men who own land in that manner would be considered freemen by the common law that they were familiar with. 
this is what Israel was seeking. This is what uh, many Americans were seeking when they came over here. But today, nobody owns land. They don't own their car. They don't even own their right to labor. A portion of their labor is removed from them before they ever even see the value of it. And uh, that is not only like Egypt, it's worse than Egypt, because in Egypt only 20% was owed to the government, and it was called bondage. Today, people often pay far more than that, and they call it freedom. Uh, the vast welfare system is completely contrary to the way that they look at things because it's devoid of charity. In those days, if you had needed help, you went to church. Uh, you went to your neighbors. You didn't go to a government that forced you to contribute to the welfare of your neighbor, whether he was moral or not. Uh, the loss of all these levels of freedom are, would just, I would assume, shock even, and that's why I said even Hamilton would be shocked <laughs> at right. the state of things. But Americans have been immersed in this over the last uh, century or so, um, so much so, or at least this last century, last 50 years, that they think they still live in the home of the free and the land of the brave. And uh, quite the contrary has taken place. Um, I uh, sent you uh, an email. I don't know if you still have access to your computer while you're on the air, but you asked before the show started how people could find us and what, where they could listen. We will have uh, recordings of this eventually, and there is an archive at the radio station, but it's at Liberty Radio Live, and we're about to go to a commercial break in, in about a minute. And so you can take a look at that email and send it on to anybody else that you want. We don't want to lose you uh, <laughs> making calls. Had enough technical difficulties already. But uh, when we get back, uh, we can take this conversation anywhere you want to take it. Uh, you know, many of the things you say uh, are very much in agreement with our listening audience. Uh, and we intend to have the recording of the show up and available for everybody in the, in the future. Um, so uh, we'll give that a little bit of thought when we go to the break. Uh, uh, and we'll maybe take a look at some of these other things that you have on this uh, extensive web network that you have. Uh, so we'll let you give a little bit of thought to that. Anyway, to my listening audience, we have Kevin Craig, and we'll be back in a few moments with more on Keys to the Fight the fight. We are here to equip you because you love the truth. LibertyRadioLive.com The Greatest Prophecy DVD from Across the Border Productions. Embrace the little known, the greatest prophecy given by the great high priest, the one secret plan for mankind at the first sacrificial event. Believe it. Behold the end times in Daniel chapter 2, because the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. 
It is the key to prophecy future. Comprehend the seven-year great tribulation deception. Be not deceived. Understand the great prophecy delusion because if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Be forewarned. America and prophecy exposed for all to see. You must see it. The mark of the beast. No, it's not a biochip implant. A much better and more secure technology is already here and you are already using it. We will bonus you with a free copy of Richard Bennett's groundbreaking work, The Inquisition, when you send a support donation of $20 to First Amendment Radio. Visit the shopping page at our website or send $20 cash to First Amendment Radio, 139 East Tulare Avenue, Tulare, T-U-L-A-R-E, California, 93274. Send your support donation of $20 cash to First Amendment Radio, 139 East Tulare, T-U-L-A-R-E, Avenue, Tulare, California, or $30 U.S. for international priority mail outside the U.S.A. A wise man is forewarned and prepared for the times to come. Will you be ready? The Greatest Prophecy DVD. Now listen to me. The Bible says, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I want you to know that a corporation is Caesar. Government Takeover of the Church. This DVD is the most powerful tool we have for waking up those asleep in the pews. The scripture calls for his people to come out of her. The corporate church is the apostate church, the whore that rides the beast. Make copies and give them away to your corporate church friends and loved ones. The truth will make them free. They will watch the DVD, Government Takeover of the Church. Who will tell them if not you? Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559-781-3773. Now listen to me. Now, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, a few announcements uh, come April 20th and 22nd, 2012. We'll have a gathering at Lake of the Oaks in Missouri. Uh, for those of you who want to go there and visit with some of the people that will be coming there from states roundabout and in Missouri, uh, just get a hold of us at hisholychurch.org and uh, join us at the network the little guy with the net, join the network in your area, and they'll give you all the information and and help you meet up with other people that are thinking along the same lines that we've been preaching, and we believe Christ has been preaching since the, uh, the dawn of this age. Um, also, we'll have another feast, uh, festival fall feast here in Oregon in the last week of September, and we're hoping to make that as large a feast as we've ever had. We've got lots of room to have it. And so any of you who want to learn about that, also join the network and uh, become a part of that. Now, today our guest is Kevin Craig. Um, we talked a little bit of an introduction uh, uh, on Kevin. We could go on with that for two hours. But 
we want to be constructive, so we're going to try to go on to some of the other uh, uh, concepts uh, that we mentioned in, in the first hour, but in a way in which what can people do about the problem. Uh, we believe that Christ was preaching a government. That government could be called lots of things. It was called the kingdom of God. We had uh, the apostles accused of these are the men that do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They didn't break the law. They just did contrary to the, the decrees of Caesar because they said there was another king. That kingdom was in one sense a pure republic, but another word that could be used to describe that kingdom was anarchist, uh, anarchism. Uh, and we mentioned that in the first part of the show, but usually when you mention that word, people get all upset. They think that's a bad word. They think that's a bad thing. And Kevin has some extensive information on his website, and we can't go through all of it, but I'm going to give Kevin the opportunity to explain a little bit about anarchism, because I'm sure he's experienced at that. Occasionally people... When they hear what we're talking about, they say, well, you're an anarchist. And I say, thank you. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but anyway, Kevin maybe can tell you what it means to be an anarchist. So I'll give you the floor, Kevin. Well, the first place to start, especially when you're talking to a Christian who says, you know, anarchism, that's a bad thing to be an anarchist. We've been trained by government education to believe that an anarchist, is a bomb-throwing assassin who doesn't believe in private property, foments riots, disorder, chaos. He's a terrorist, and he wants to uh, set up some kind of dictatorship of the proletariat or some kind of other wacko idea, and, of course, with himself in charge. And, obviously, a Christian is the exact 180-degree black and white off and on opposite of that, because a Christian does not believe in bombs, or assassination does believe in private property. The Bible says, let all things be done decently in an order. The Bible is certainly against acts of terror and violence. And, um, and basically, it's against everything that we think of when we think of an anarchist. But in the Bible, it's the archists who are bad and the anarchists are good. And that's a, that's a funny, funny phrase to say, an archist. What's an archist? Well, our English word anarchist comes from two Greek words, the A which is also called the alpha primitive, means not or without. And then there's the word archist. So an anarchist or anarchy is the absence of archist. But we don't know what an archist is. So the place to learn about it is in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus catches his disciples arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Of course, they had the idea that the Messiah was going to become this great conquering uh, military you know, conqueror who was going to destroy the Romans and basically turn everything upside down by allowing the Israelites to beat on the Romans just like the Romans in their military occupation of Israel had been beating on the Israelites. And the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the, the little Caesar, the big guy on the totem pole. They had a completely wrong conception of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus corrected them. And he said, the kings of the Gentiles love to be and the Greek word he used in, the, in Mark chapter 10 is the Greek word from which we get our English word anarchist. He says the kings of the Gentiles like to be archists. But he says to the disciples, you are not to be like that. You are not to be archists. An archist is someone who likes to impose his will on other people by force. 
initiating force, not as self-defense, but initiating force and threatening people with violence as a way of coercing them and com com um, a compulsion to make them do what he thinks they should do. And that's an archist, imposing his will on other people by force or threats of violence. And that's totally contrary to Jesus' ethics. So Jesus says, you are not to be an archist. There's no, there's no easy out here for you to say, well, I didn't impose my will on other people by force. I hired a, a, a mafia hitman to you know, break somebody's knees or to impose my will on others by force. Or I didn't impose my will on other people by force. I voted for a politician to do that. That's the same thing. There's no ethical um, free, free zone or anything like that that allows you some kind of liberty to delegate the power of, of coercing other people and imposing your will on other people by force. It's, it's unchristian. But Archist is the bad guy in the Bible. And all through the Bible, if you look at the books of kings and everywhere, there's a, a, a condemnation of those who seek to use violence to impose their, certainly contrary to Christian ethics, it's, it's contrary to Christian ethics to use force or, or threaten people with violence to impose your will on them, to make them do what you think they should do, whether that's torturing them so that they denounce heresies or compuls compulsion in some way to get them to become Christians. Evangelism by the sword is unchristian, and that means archism. Being an archist is unchristian. Now, if you, if, you, if you type in Google, if you type in the big lie and Christmas conspiracy, you'll come up to a, one of my pages, which is called the biggest government lie of all time. And that's the lie that Anarchists are bad and archists are good. We don't talk about archists, but basically, anarchists are bad. Everybody agrees anarchists are bad. And then they, they, if anarchists are bad, then logically the opposite is true, that archists must be good. Those who oppose the anarchists, those who protect us from the anarchists, logically they are archists, and they must be the good guys. And that's, a, that's the big lie. The fact is that archists are bad, and, and in the Christian perspective, anarchists are the good guys. As long as you do not believe in the initiation of force, you do not believe in imposing your will on other people by force or threats of violence, then you're following, you're following Jesus in that essential uh, aspect. So that's, uh, that's a real mind shifter for a lot of people to realize that we've been totally hoodwinked. It's, it's the exact opposite of what we've been told. We've been told anarchists are bad, and those who fight against and protect us from the anarchists, those are the good guys. When according to Jesus, the kings of the Gentiles and the artists are the bad guys, and his followers are to be servants. They're to serve others. They're not to impose their will on other people, to, make, to be the master and force other people. They're to be servants. And that's what the anarchist is, that the servant rather than a master, rather than a ruler, a dominator, a lord, an artist. So that's the, that's the first thing we should mention is, is, is with regard to anarchism. Right. On the... And on, and that uh, quote that you were uh, referring to in uh, the Bible was Mark 10:42, and there's actually, if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that this same directive of Christ, and that's one of the things that at a recent uh, and, and almost every opportunity I get, I ask pastors, what are the directives of Christ? Because he did give us some direction. It wasn't all just parables. He said to do certain things and not to do certain things. And you'll see in, uh, you know, Matthew 20, 25, the same uh, concept expressed. And in Luke 22, 25, 
he says the same thing uh, again, but he says, And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. And just like the other three quotes, he says, But ye shall not be so. And I like to use that particular quote a lot of, a lot of times because he's talking about uh, they're called benefactors. And I think that's one of the major problems. Once we get the idea that we're not supposed to exercise authority over our brothers and rule over our brothers, and the guys that say, no, we're supposed to create governments that exercise authority are actually contrary to what Christ is saying, we have to take a look at, well, how do they get authority? We see in Egypt they got authority because the people were without bread, they were without money, and they sold themselves into bondage. I think that Americans have done the same thing to these corporate institutions that were created maybe for one purpose and then now have, you know, unmoored themselves from that purpose. But the way they've gotten power is that we have looked to these men as benefactors. But they're not really benefactors. They don't give you money out of their pockets. They give you money out of your neighbor's pockets. And so what that amounts to is a violation of the Ten Commandments any socialist-type scheme where you hire a government or an official to take money from your neighbor, legal or otherwise, so that you will benefit, is coveting your neighbor's goods. And it is certainly not faith, hope, and charity. So, you know, this is actually, if you go to our website and you look up, uh, we have three basic uh, concepts in His Holy Church and our polity, and they're all based on what Christ said. And the prime directive, it's referred to as the prime directive, is that we're not to exercise authority one over the other. So, yeah, I can't be a lawyer. I can't be a senator, a congressman, or actually I'm not even sure I can be one of these enfranchised U.S. citizens either. Um, and so that's kind of where it puts me, and a lot of our listeners have looked at that. So taking that concept of benefactors, what do you see as a solution for the people who don't want to go to the artists, who want to be anarchists, but still want to have some sort of voluntary system of government. Do you have any comments on that concept or direction that people can take? Well, it may be, and you can argue with me if you, if you differ, but it may be something of a delusion to believe that we can, at least in our lifetime here in the 21st century, um, ever be free from institutionalized theft. There are too many people in this country who want our money and they want it for themselves or they want to gain some kind of social prestige or assuage their conscience in some way by taking our money and giving to people they think deserve it more than we do. And they're just, there's, it's almost impossible to get around that. The point, however, is for us to reject that way of life and live our own lives as servants and not as, as thieves and as part of a system of institutionalized theft. We just have to say, I would rather live in a rather simple lifestyle than to enjoy the perks and benefits of institutionalized theft. And uh, we may not have all of the things and the material comforts that we want, but we have a kind of spiritual freedom and we have the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ who will say to us, you know, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
which I'm not sure we would have that if we make it a point to accumulate as much material goods as we can using a system of institutionalized theft and being a part of the system. Now, no matter how much we try to drop out, there will always be people who will want us to drop back in. They, they will plunder us. They will want us to be part of the system. And we just have to say, I reject, I reject the worldview of institutionalized wealth redistribution. And uh, I think that's the most important part is to be, is to spiritually reject the, the archist mentality and the archist lifestyle as much as possible. Yeah, I think that's what, uh, actually, when I go back and read the, the Bible and uh, the Old Testament, I think most people's view of the Old Testament is absolutely incorrect. Uh, you know, I don't even believe that uh, Moses or Abraham were involved in animal sacrifice. I think that that's all a delusion of pharisaical translations. And one of the most popular religious groups at the time of Christ who had a philosophy very similar to what we see Christ saying in the gospel, thought that that interpretation of the Torah was a fiction and a fraud, that the altars were actually living altars of stone. The sacrifices were just the donations, the free will offerings given to men of charity. And those men of charity were the stones of the altar, the unregulated stones of the altar. And you chose to give to them, and they took care of the needy of your society and that it operated by faith, hope, and charity. And that's really what Abraham was doing. That was really what Moses was doing. And people were bound together by this faith, hope, and charity, which is love, and not by covenants and contracts and benefactors who exercise authority. And that was the entire purpose of the altar. And, of course, that's met with as much derision and confusion as uh, mentioning that we're supposed to be anarchists, But uh, and that's another whole part of the book. But... I think that when Moses was in Egypt, they were pretty much in the same kind of bondage we see today. And it had gotten worse with different leaders so that they were oppressing the people and working them harder and harder to the point where they were actually aborting their children. Uh, but what Moses had them doing is still working in that system of Egypt, paying their tally of bricks. But it says, gleaning in the field at night for their straw. And my interpretation of that from the Hebrew, and we can go into that some other time when we've got a lot more time, and it's in the books that we offer, uh, is that that straw is the benefit of that government that exercised authority, compelled the offerings of the people to provide them with social welfare in the times of shortages and etc. And so I think that that's, of the mindset that we have to say uh, have a lot of people want to get out of the system but they don't want to get into the mindset set of a true virtuous anarchist who actually cares about his neighbor as much as he cares about himself he wants to be independent he wants to be self-reliant he wants to take care of his family but he cannot with a kingdom mindset forget about his neighbor and his other brothers who are trying to do the same thing and I think that that's what the early church was actually doing. Uh, we use the word church, but whatever these men were that were appointed by Christ and the thousands who uh, got the baptism of Jesus Christ, one of the things we point out a lot of people don't know is that there was a baptism of Herod and there was a baptism of John the Baptist. The baptism of Herod put you in a social welfare system where the archists forced you to contribute to the welfare of the state 
into the government building called the temple. But John the Baptist said, no, that if your neighbor has a shortage, he has only an old coat, and you have two, you to share by faith, open charity. And so there were these two systems, and I think that's what, as the anarchists we are, we don't always call ourselves anarchists, but as the true Christians we are seeking to be, we're trying to create those system of free will offerings where we help, we take care of ourselves, but we will also help take care of others that are doing the same. And I don't know if you're familiar with all of that that we were doing, but that's what I was wondering if there's anywhere on your website where people are actually talking about coming together and becoming the social benefactors through true charity, not through the archist false charity that we see from the men who call themselves benefactors. So anyway, with that little bit on my part, back to our guest. Do you have any comments on those concepts, or uh, do you have anything written up on that? Well, um, on the on the charity, the positive charity, that's a really important issue. I do think there are a lot of Christians who are involved, but we don't hear about them. You don't hear about on the mainstream media all the Christians who are um, engaging in hospitality or working or have soup kitchens, whatever they're doing, there are lots of things that are happening that you don't hear about in the mainstream media. So um, I'm intrigued by your discussion about uh, the altars and the animal sacrifices. I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with that. I, I've never heard that before. However, it might intersect in some way with my own uh, theory on capital punishment which is at kevincraig.us, and you can pull down the menu on the, on the top of the page there. Uh, one thing I think that really, pre- it's an obstacle in the way of uh, people accepting the biblical critique of archists is that they believe Romans 13 gives the power of the sword to the state, whoever that is, and that the purpose of the sword especially is to protect us against those nasty anarchists and other criminals by killing them, capital punishment. Now, my own take on that is that in the Old Testament, there were, for the most part, if you, if you committed a sin that, the way I've always understood it, and what you're suggesting may, may, may be contrary to that, I, I don't know, but my understanding was that you were required to bring an animal and there was a sacrifice that made atonement and, and covered up uh, which is, of course, the meaning of the word atonement, to cover up or to cleanse your sin. And then there were some sins that were so heinous in the eyes of God that merely sacrificing an animal would not cleanse the land of that sin, and in particular murder, also homosexuality, adultery, and so forth. But let's focus on murder as the best example. The, the Bible says that blood... In Numbers 35, 33, blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And in Leviticus uh, 17 and 18 and around there, you frequently hear the phrase, he shall bear his own blood, which means that he couldn't bring atonement. He couldn't cleanse the land from his sin by shedding the blood of an animal, but his own blood had to be shed. You have an interesting case in Deuteronomy 21 where you have an unsolved homicide. It's obvious that somebody has been killed, as as in murdered, uh, on purpose by someone else, 
you have the body, but you don't know who the criminal, the perpetrator is. And you can try, you can search, and you can do your investigation, but you still end up with no perpetrator. So Deuteronomy 21 says the elders of the town closest to the body are to take a heifer and foot its throat, put their hands on the, on the heifer and say, um, Lord, take away the, do not lay the innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel, and, and instead accept the blood of the heifer. Now, obviously, the, the vast majority, 99.99% of all Christians today believe that if we have an unsolved homicide, the city council or county supervisors are not required to take a heifer and shed its blood. And they rightly say that the, the, the only blood that does anything anymore is Christ's blood. And so they say we don't need to have a shedding of blood in the case of an unsolved homicide. But if they do find the perpetrator, they say, well, now we need to shed his blood. They don't say we need to shed his blood. They say we need to lethal injection, uh, gas chamber, electric chair. But all those are just modern updates of the biblical command. The biblical command was whoever sheds man's blood, Genesis 9, by man his blood shall be shed. So they're, they're going back to the Old Testament commands, which really aren't criminal codes in our modern sense of the word. They were ceremonial codes. They were saying the shedding of innocent blood pollutes the land, and in order to make atonement, you have to shed the blood of the perpetrator, and that's how you make atonement. Now, we don't shed blood because of Christ, but yet people still believe in what we call capital punishment. And I think that changes the face of what the state is for. It changes the face of the Old Covenant. In fact, what you see when you see the holy wars of the Old Testament, and a lot of people say, well, you can't be a pacifist, you can't be an anarchist, you can't be opposed to artists and the use of force, because the Bible validates the use of force. It validates wars, and we see all the wars in the Old Testament. But what war was in the Old Testament was national capital punishment. It was saying this whole civilization, this whole society is covenantally murderous and homosexual. And the only way that the land, the promised land, can be cleansed is by the shedding of their blood. So they were devoted, and there's a, there's a Hebrew word, a technical term there. These whole cities were devoted as sacrifices, and, and their, their, their blood was shed to cleanse the land. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, a bold foreign policy for the New World Order and the Bush or Obama administration. It's a ceremonial cleansing. It's a making of atonement. So the, actually, the Bible from cover to cover is anti-archist, and the ceremonial requirements of shedding blood don't uh, endorse a military-industrial complex or a police state or any of the things that we have in the name of what the Bible is actually saying, cleanse the land of the shedding of innocent blood. So, obviously, uh, we, do not, we do not need to shed blood in order to cleanse the land. That was done by Christ. And so that uh, eliminates the need for the military and the, and the criminal system as we know it today. Okay, we're going to go to a break. We'll be back uh, right after this word from our sponsor, and we'll take this to another level. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. 
For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. If you read the history books, the most often asked question to Southerners was this, why did you fight? And the most often given answer is, because you're here. In other words, the South did not invade the North, the North invaded the South. Was it the Civil War or War of Federal Aggression? John Weaver sets the record straight in this DVD series on the Civil War from the Old Past Christian History Conference. Was there a war to set the slaves free? Or was it a war to enslave us all? Get this DVD and judge for yourself. War of Federal Aggression. The truth seems strange only because we've been indoctrinated with a fiction. War of Federal Aggression. Get it today. Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559-781-3773. 559-781-3773. Fight the fight. We are here to equip you. Because you love the truth, LibertyRadioLive.com. Well, welcome back, uh, Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, during the break, I sent, uh, or I'm sending off uh, the book, Thy Kingdom Come, to uh, Kevin Craig and the article, Adventures of Artifice in Language Land, which will give him some pictures as to uh, some of the research I've done since I and he were on radio together. Uh, a couple of things came up in the last show. Uh, about blood and uh, capital punishment. Uh, we just recently had a discussion on some of our groups about this idea of the man who was put to death for uh, picking up sticks on the Sabbath, which is referenced in the Bible. And, of course, my contention that he wasn't actually put to death. He wasn't actually killed. He was treated as if he was dead. And it wasn't because he was just picking up sticks on the Sabbath but because of other activities that the Sabbath has to do with, which really has to do with debt and, uh, and uh, oppression. Uh, the Sabbath isn't really just not working on a certain day, but it's earning your rest by working the six days before your day of rest. But anyway, that's another whole topic. Um, one of the things I was going to point out to Kevin real quick, so that but he'll get a chance to look at the material that I sent him, is uh, one of the stark discoveries that I made was this idea when I, it always bothered me that supposedly if you committed certain sins, you were supposed to kill this dove. And I happened to raise doves, and I thought, well, now if I sin in the Old Testament, I go kill this dove. Well, when I began to look at the Hebrew language again and I realized the same exact word for dove was the word for a piece of my estate. 
Uh, and, of course, in those early days of Israel, a piece of your state was actually an elodium. You actually owned it, untaxed. Uh, it was yours. It belonged to your family forever. But you had to give up a piece of your estate, not kill some poor, lonesome dove. And, of course, the Pharisees didn't like that, so they changed the meaning of the word from a piece of your estate to killing a dove. And there's a lot more to it than that, but that was just a little peek at how easy and, and you can look at the artifice and language language, which is available at our, our website part. The other thing that was mentioned in the last half hour was Romans 13, and all of you who are regular listeners know what a favorite topic of that, and I'll have to send in the book on that, uh, The Higher Liberty. And I'll mention it here, and I'm sure he'll be delighted to hear this. <laughs> Because Kevin's very close to the kingdom, in my opinion. He can't come to all these crazy conclusions about anarchism and and uh, not exercising authority and seeing the prime directive as important, you know, uh, without being close to the kingdom. But uh, it is uh, just to bring you up to date in the book, The Higher Liberty, we point out that when Paul says, let every man re- uh, be, remain subject to... Uh, higher powers, the word power there is translated liberty elsewhere in the Bible. And it is actually the strongest word for liberty at that time, according to the Greeks. It didn't just mean liberty, but the absolute right to choose that we are endowed with by God. And so if you were to translate that power, because there's six, seven different definitions of power, but translated as the right to choose or liberty, uh, it would read, let every man remain subject to the higher liberty, because all liberty is of God. There is no liberty but of God, and anyone who opposes liberty opposes God. Uh, That would be quite a different connotation. He does go on to talk about government, but he says governments are instituted by the wicked uh, to control the wicked. And that's, of course, exactly what they are. As the wicked get together and decide, let's exercise authority over our neighbor. Let's all have one purse. And Proverbs says they run towards death. And so, yes, those governments are instituted. We're not trying to get rid of those governments. We're trying to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's a much different picture, in our opinion, than we're getting from most of the churches that claimed to be a church. The other thing that was brought up was uh, a lot of Christians are doing charitable work. They're out there running soup kitchens, and they are doing a lot of charitable work. Some of the work that they're doing that they call charity, and we just had this at a recent pastor's conference, is really not charity because it's actually weakening the poor. They're actually... uh, 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 enabling the poor to continue in a lifestyle of sloth and avarice, and it is not real charity. And it's very important, this was in the conference, we were saying, well, how do we know the difference? Because we know the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of, in a time of affluence, of weakening the poor. And many of the Christian charities today actually do more to weaken the poor than to strengthen them. And the church needs to be guarded against that. So with those comments, I want to go back to our guest and give him the floor and uh, see what 
where he would like to take this conversation and this uh, to enlighten our listeners as to uh, some of the other things that he has discovered rather than just some of the things that we have discovered. But it's, it's, we're trying to share here and see if iron can't sharpen iron. But anyway, Craig, uh, Kevin, uh, where do you want to take this, and do you have any comments about some of the things that I just mentioned? Well, I think Romans 13 is a really pivotal passage because it's so terribly misunderstood. And uh, I have a website, Romans13.com. My theory on Romans 13 a little bit different than yours. Uh, I, as I understand it, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did. That was my foreign language in college, so and I know my way around the Greek a little bit. If you go to Google, uh, let's, let's just talk about that Greek word. It, it's really important. Uh, the word you're talking about is spelled E-X-O-U-S-I-A, and that is, as you correctly state, it's translated liberty and things like that in the New Testament. However, in Romans 13, the word is the plural E-X-O-U-S-I-A, and then there's an I at the end. And that changes the game entirely because the word in the plural really doesn't mean anything like the word in the singular. The word in the plural, when it's translated in the King James Version as powers, is a word, and also in Greek literature as well, not just in the Bible, but I believe elsewhere, is, uh, is a word which means roughly demonic powers angelic powers. That's why, for example, in Ephesians 6.12, Paul says we don't wrestle against blood and flesh, but against principalities and powers. And in fact, everywhere in the New Testament, every single occurrence of the word in the plural clearly, well, I shouldn't say clearly, all but one. One is not as clear, but all the others clearly are talking about demonic powers. I just mentioned Ephesians 6.12. When you see that phrase, principalities and powers, everybody in the ancient world, the ancient Roman world, understood we're talking about demonic powers. And Paul in Romans 13 is talking about a nexus, a continuum, um, an interrelationship, a symbiosis between emperors and demons. And uh, for some religions, the demons are the good guys. They, they believe that. They believe, for example, that uh, the, the, a dead emperor would become a kind of living guide. The genius of the emperor, for example, is the kind of a way of speaking about the demon of the emperor, the uh, um, angelic spiritual power that guides and protects the emperor, uh, is in fact a previous emperor. And so that whole idea that was universally understood in the Greek and Roman world is an idea that Paul is saying, well, yeah, okay, uh, we understand the demonic character of emperors and empires but even these demonic and wicked empires are under the sovereign control of god and god puts these empires in place and our goal is not to try to out archist the archists our goal is to be witnesses and to continue to preach the truth and to say that jesus is the true king and all others are imposters and usurpers so One thing that most people don't understand in Romans 13 is that Paul is saying the same thing he says every other time he uses that word, X-C-C-I, in the plural. He's talking about demons. 
and he's saying Romans 12 and 13 need to be read together. In Romans 12, Paul says, don't return evil to evil. Um, if somebody does something, you don't return, don't try to do evil back to them. And he says this idea of not returning evil to evil, of submitting to evil rather than trying to out-archist the archist, it applies even to the biggest source of evil on the planet, and that is the powers, the empire, the demonic empire. And so Romans 13 is not speaking good of the state. It's saying it's a wicked and evil thing. But he's just saying we don't want to become like them. They are the archists, and we're not. And so he's simply saying the same thing he says in Romans 12, the same thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, resist not evil, or resist not the evil one, he's not saying that evil is some kind of divine institution. When he says, turn the other cheek, he's not saying that cheek slappers are a divine institution. He's just saying that our way of doing things is not to respond to evil with evil, to escalate violence with more violence, or to try to out-archist the archists. He's saying we are anarchists. We are, you want, if you want to say pacifists, fine, whatever. These are just words that are slung around to insult and, and fog people's thinking. But he says when somebody does something bad to us, we do something good to them, and we try to show them that there is a higher way than coercion and violence and being an archist. So my slide on Romans 13 is, Paul is saying, submit to evil, um, don't return evil for evil, even when you're dealing with the greatest evil on the whole planet, the state. <clears throat> yeah, that what I see, uh, and I'm actually on your website, that's Romans13.com, uh, and I was looking at it, I can't read and listen at the same time, I'm not that good <laughs> I'll have to refer to it after the show. Um, the uh, you're right about uh, the fact that this uh, uh, power again. I, it, it's very clear when you read Aristotle, Plato, when they actually are talking about this specific word and defining it, uh, that it has to do with this right to choose. But they also uh, plural doesn't. You're right. Also, plural doesn't always mean multiple and the Greek language, it actually raises the level of the word to almost a new meaning sometimes. But I uh, I will look diligently over your website uh, as time permits, and I think we're both on the same track. When I first saw the kingdom in my heart and in my mind, when it was revealed to me, and I think it was probably at a very early age, but... I went out and I confronted knowledge. I studied uh, in seminaries, and I kept seeing something different than what they were describing. It took a long time before I realized that they were not seeing the same thing that I was seeing when they quoted things like in the Bible. I saw something else. And so I've only gone back to the languages that they were trying to teach me and taken a second look at them to find out, uh, where they have used the sophistry of language to steer us away. And I think we're both on the same track. Um, I think uh, from my, in the back of higher liberty, I go to every single place that the word excusia is used. I did not attend to where it was plural and where it was not plural. Uh, but I will go back and do that as time presented because you brought up an interesting uh, point. But, uh, yeah, I think that this, my experience with evil 
is a, and I've, I've dealt with it all my life. I've gone into court with other people uh, that have gotten themselves into trouble often by doing things I told them not to do to begin with. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I haven't had to go in for myself but because uh, uh, we haven't been getting in that kind of trouble. But I've been in, you know, violent locations in the world and places where there are riots and uh, people that are very angry. And my experience with evil is it always wants to bring you down to this level of judgment and resentment and anger and uh, opposition. And what it wants to do is it wants you to oppose it. You know, whether you conform or rebel is immaterial, but they want your relationship to be on its level on its uh, principle of power and control and opposing forces, the yin and the yang, so to speak. Uh, I think that there is two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of uh, evil, demonic uh, kingdom, and the kingdom of God. And they are not opposing forces. The kingdom of God <clears throat> is actually the state that man ought to be in, which is a virtuous state, and everything else <clears throat> simply falls short of that. Uh, excuse me. Uh, and so, um, but I am going to take a look at that higher liberty uh, and the use of the plural and take a look at your website, and I recommend everybody else do it because I think it's very important when we find people that are thinking outside the box, uh, that we iron does sharpen iron. And that uh, God gives revelation to one and revelation to another. And, and this is what it means to uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So anyway, uh, let's go on to uh, something else. Um, do you have any kind of a network idea with your website? You, you have a blog, but do you have connections with other people across the country that are beginning to think and see these ways that are other than do you have any kind of lifestyle alternatives that we're talking about uh, that may help people? No, I really don't. And I, I have in the past had some... Um, well, excursions into lifestyle alternatives. For the better part of a decade, I uh, lived in a large house with a couple of friends, just a small community of the people who uh, we rented a big old 12-room house in a bad part of town. And we put the word out on the street that anybody who wanted to get off drugs and get off the street could, uh, could live in our house, and uh, we'd help them put, it, put together a resume, get Keep decent clothes for an interview, help them get a job, help them get to the job. They could save up first and last month's rent and, uh, you know, stay in our house. And we, none of us took a salary of any kind. We kind of did dumpster diving. We got food from uh, grocery stores, hospitals, and stuff like that. And we fed, oh, hundreds of people a week, basically. We just opened up our dining room. We set the tables up real nice and uh, got to know people as they came in for, for lunch. And when we found someone who over a course of time, maybe over a month or so, indicated to us that they were serious about getting their act together. We would invite them to stay with us. And uh, so that was sort of a, 
we had we had people from different churches who would come in to help us prepare meals because we were we were we were serving food for hundreds of people a week, and sometimes we would actually get more food from donations and grocery stores and stuff like that that we would actually pack up bags of groceries and and pass them out to neighbors uh, around our house. So we had quite an operation. We had a lot of people who come in from churches and sometimes uh, from Christian schools and Catholic schools also. Uh, students could get some extra credit for coming to our house and helping prepare a meal, sit down with the homeless, talk with them, and find out what's going on in their lives and, and try to be some kind of a force. Uh, right now, um, my, my, main, my main charitable outreach is for my mother, who was uh, taken really, really ill a while back and, and needs pretty much 24-7 health care right now. So I'm, I'm disconnected from a flesh-and-blood community right now. But uh, I think those kinds of communities, you know, uh, we, were, we were anarchists. I mean, we were part of the, actually part of the Catholic worker movement, uh, and uh, it's an anarchist movement. And I think you really have to, you have to, as you say, think out of the box. You have to break through the mold before you're willing to do something which is so countercultural. So I think the anarchism issue is, is pivotal. Right. Uh, when you say the anarchist issue, I, I know you're throwing that word around. You can, and I'm sure you're quite aware that <clears throat> if you said that on major network, you would have to go into a half hour explanation <laughs> of well, what an anarchist is. The whole point is. is to get a discussion like that started. And sometimes you have to kind of shock people, right. get their attention. There's so much stuff out there, so much noise out there. You have to get their attention. And sometimes throwing out those words is a good way to get their attention. And then, you know, if you can get into the discussion, you, you wouldn't have a discussion if you didn't get their attention. So if you get right. their attention, then you have a discussion, at least you have a discussion. And it's possible you can have progress. It's possible they'll be inflamed and, and angered at you saying you're an anarchist, but at least you're having a discussion. You know, the advertisers, the advertising gurus say, you have to put your product in front of the consumer seven times. You have to, the consumer has to hear your name seven times before it finally clicks and they actually go out and buy your product. They, they hear it and they don't hear it. They hear it again and they still really don't hear it. The third time they hear it, they say, you know, I think I've heard of that before. And the fourth time and the fifth time they say, you know, I keep hearing about this thing. And then finally on the sixth or seventh time they say, well, I'm going to really check this out. I'm going to get into this. And, you know, so it takes a lot of breaking through the static and the noise to get people to think in an alternative way. And the first few times they're going to stone you. But after a while, they're going to go, you know what, I think you're right. Somebody said the way truth progresses is uh, the critics will say, that can't possibly be true, and it's outrageous for you to even suggest that it's true. And then in the second stage, they say, well, it might be true, but so what? It's irrelevant. And then the third stage is, as we've been saying all along, or as we've known all along, and then, of course, your position is accepted, although at first it was quite a rocky road. Yeah, I, yeah, we've experienced that. As a matter of fact, a few of our uh, what we call contact ministers were out on another forum trying to explain some of these things. They were very patient and and introducing new ideas, and were met with extreme anger and resentment. And but they kept their cool and they continued to present their uh, vision. Uh, of the kingdom in, in, you know, within the realm of that forum. And eventually they, uh, 
you know, kind of cooled things off and cut back a little bit. But then all of a sudden, someone who had not spoke up on that forum at all, who had not said anything, finally saw the contrast between uh, our people who were there presenting their what they had discovered and the people that were there that were actually archists trying to control the, you know, the forum and, uh, you know, they were uh, wallowing in ad hominems. They never wanted to even discuss the issue. They just attacked the individuals. Uh, but we saw all of a sudden somebody saw that contrast. And I think that's really important to get this message of your vine and fig tree. I think it would uh, it would flow uh, well into what we're doing because we're actually creating these congregations of record where people are gathering together they're not bound by contracts they're not they're not electing offices who can exercise authority uh, they're actually he who is to be highest amongst them is to be a servant to all and uh, it's very difficult but as soon as you uh, create an office of power men who seek power will seek office so it's really the responsibility of the people to only create offices of service. And that's, that's not what the Constitution did. I mean, they made some attempt because really the Constitution, the people weren't even a party to it. That was way over here. It was an agreement between the states. <clears throat> but the people have gone to it now and eaten at its table. And as Paul and... David says, what should have been for your welfare has become a snare. And so we think it's very important that the church have projects where they become the health, education, and welfare of the people, but not <clears throat> necessarily for everybody. Like you said, you had people that came there, and once you found out that they were really serious, uh, you started opening your doors even more to them. And that's what we're hoping to do is to start these uh, little local congregations all over the country. And as I mentioned, we're going to have a meeting in Missouri, uh, which you're in Missouri now. You're in southern Missouri. Right. So, and uh, so, but I think the meeting's in northern Missouri. I don't know my way around <clears throat> the state very well. But uh, we're trying to get people to come together and start being the kingdom of God. Start, you know, the beatitudes, the servant on the mount that has to do with being something and doing something. And it's not just philosophizing about it. Uh, you know, taking care of your mother, taking care of your children, taking care of your uh, family is a full-time job in good times. Uh, it can be more than a full-time job in hard times. And judging by uh, past history and the direction that most of the world has taken, we do see the world headed for harder times. We see a good blessing in that because in hard times more people will wake up. But we need to have a strategy, and, and that's another thing that we write about, is what was that first century church doing that prepared the Christians so that they actually thrived during, even with persecution, during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And I think that people just don't have the knowledge of that, and that's one of, the, one of our, our prime directives in order to 
develop a society that does not exercise authority one over the other, we need to know what that early church was doing and how they were doing it. So we're going to end up going to another break here in a few minutes. we got about two or three minutes before we get the signal. Um, maybe we can talk about that if you can stay with us to the end of the hour. Um, would yeah, you I can, like, I can. like to explore I, I, some of that? I totally, I totally agree with you that community is really important because it's very sustaining when you're when you are at odds with a larger community like your culture or your government your state whatever it's really sustaining to know that you have other people who think like you and who agree with you that's really really important and it's hard to be it's hard to be alone without having some contact and connection with others who are thinking like you yeah i think that uh, not forsaking the gathering together is not just good advice. It's absolutely an essential characteristic of the kingdom. And uh, not to weaken each other by that support. One of the things uh, that I'm commonly heard saying is that we have to learn to stand alone together. Because in the kingdom, we're all individuals. We all have that divine spark, that revelation of understanding. That's what Christ is building his church on is not upon Peter, Simon, but upon that rock of faith, that knowing, not by the knowledge of men, not by flesh and blood, but by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, a lot of people claim that, but the way to know, and is this really really one of my brothers, is by the fruit of what he's doing, not just by his vocalized philosophy, but by the fruit of his actual doing. Uh, and so maybe in the last half hour we can talk about some things, brainstorm, knock back and forth some ideas, uh, and then we'll hopefully we'll introduce you and maybe you will want to introduce others to our network and uh, uh, we can expand and find those gold nuggets, those pearls, which we always say the treasure of the kingdom, that's you. Uh, that's the divine spark, the, the Holy Spirit living in each of you, because we see each man as the stone of the temple, uh, that kingdom, uh, where the real power and glory is at. So, anyway, I'm watching the clock. I haven't heard the signal yet, but I think we only got about 60 seconds before we go to another break. Um, uh, is there any other topics that we should also try to cover in the second half hour that you can think of uh, other than community and maybe brainstorm some ideas about how we can develop that community uh, on a local basis? Well, if there's another word that's as offensive as uh, anarchism, it's the word pacifism. And I think our communities have to be built on um, – uh, a resistance to archism, and that people will describe that as pacifism as well. If we don't render evil for evil, they'll say we're defenseless in the face of evil. So I think maybe okay. we need to talk about that. We can talk about that when we return. The keys to the kingdom.
fight the fight. We are here to equip you because you love the truth. LibertyRadioLive.com Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States in 1963. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no secret is revealed. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. Confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Ladies and gentlemen, the president today. You were both in skull and bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? I've got a vision for what I want to do for the country. See, I know exactly where I want to lead. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? Now listen to me. The Bible says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I want you to know that a corporation is Caesar. Government takeover of the church. This DVD is the most powerful tool we have for waking up those asleep in the pews. The scripture calls for his people to come out of her. The corporate church is the apostate church, the whore that rides the beast. Make copies and give them away to your corporate church friends and loved ones. The truth will make them free. They will watch the DVD, Government Takeover of the Church. Who will tell them if not you? Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559-781-3773. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm talking with uh, our special guest, Kevin Craig, and uh, he's an anarchist and a pacifist. But before anybody gets all excited about that, uh, if you haven't heard the first part of the show, you'll need to listen to it in the archives in order to find out what we meant by that. But we're going to talk a little bit about pacifism. Uh, Before we do, I'd like to go over some of the things that we've gone over in the last uh, week or so uh, in in the network and with a number of people, and uh, also mention that we'll be on this afternoon on Freedomizer at 3 our time, 
And also there's going to be a debate this evening late uh, for two hours on is Paul an apostle or an apostate? And uh, you, you'll have to tune in to find out what side I'm taking. <laughs> but many of you already know. Uh, but this is on another network, and so you'll have to find out through the Living Network where all that is. It's posted on the website. Um, we were made in the image of God originally. I think it has been the design of evil, demonic forces, whatever you want to call it, to redesign us. And since evil does not really have a design of its own, it designs us very much like God, but missing certain elements of God. And so when we look at God, we know he's a life giver, he's a forgiver, he's a, a uh, just uh, God, uh, all these things. So if we're missing any of those characteristics, we become incompatible with God and we lose access to what was called in the Bible the tree of life, which I think in the New Testament might be called the Holy Spirit. And I believe that if we allow God to remake us back in that image and let go of these false, uh, uh, what we call vice characteristics, vice is really just like darkness, it's the absence of light, and vice is simply the absence of virtue. And if we allow God back in our hearts that he will remake us and we will have that power of dominion, People are trying to get dominion by, you know, fighting against evil. Evil loves that. But really the way you get dominion is conform to God, which in our modern terms would be conform to Christ, to be Christ-like. And I believe that you will be energized with a power and a spirit that you can actually go in as a true Christian pacifist with more power than any evil force can muster uh, with or without guns or swords. I, I like Christ, I'm not telling you to throw away your sword, uh, but you, if you have to reach for it, it's because you probably have failed to reach for Christ in some aspect of your life. And uh, you need to be aware of that all the time. So with that, I'm going to open up the conversation on pacifism and give the floor back to Kevin Craig. Kevin, what I do you have, have to a, say about it? I have another website for you. I've got lots of websites. They're all None of them are really totally complete, but they're all works in progress. But another website I have for you is called dominionpacifism.com. And, uh, boy, it's, you know, it's a big subject. It, it has to be – it encompasses our whole economy – for example, a capitalist economy is basically a pacifist economy. It's, a, it's an economy that results from peaceful transactions, voluntary transactions, and a socialist economy is, as some economists would call it, a command economy. It, behind it all is violence, it's threats of violence and punitive um, compulsion, punishments and so forth. So pacifism is capitalism. But pacifism is also... Um, and community. I think I want to bring the word community in here from the previous segment. Uh, one of the most fearful things that, uh, uh, well, that Christians should com contemplate is a lonely widow who is a victim of crime. And a Christian church, a group of believers, 
who, you know, say goodbye to a widow on Sunday when church is over and dispatch her off to her home where she's alone and she faces uh, possible, if she lives in a bad neighborhood, criminals. Uh, it would be, I think, much better if Christians had more of a, a community that formed a kind of protection. I think it's very rare that a lone criminal would attack a community or a house full of people, although some are brazen, but uh, usually they, they attack the lonely and the, and the weak, and that's part of community. When people attack us, uh, when we oppose archism and we oppose the state, uh, and, and if we get accused of being a pacifist because we take Romans 12 seriously and when we, under, when we look at Romans 13, or we take Jesus seriously in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, they always think that if we just have a pacifist society that the criminals are going to take over. And there are quite a few things to say about that. One thing we might say is that when artists run the government, they like to say that pacifists are really stupid because uh, we know how much wiser it is for us to have the power of government, the power of guns, the power of police, the power of military, the power of compulsion, threats of violence. That's what works. That's what's pragmatic. That's, the, that's sensible and realistic and practical. And pacifism is just utopian and unrealistic. But it's that same government that in our day says that our public school teachers cannot teach children in public schools that the Declaration of Independence is really true. Now, public school students can be taught that the Declaration of Independence was something that people used to believe as an irrelevant historical anachronism. You can teach the Declaration of Independence that way. But you cannot teach children that it's actually true, that the, the existence of God is a self-evident truth, that God has actually communicated to human beings and uh, explained the laws of nature and of nature's God, and that we will be held accountable for our observance of the laws of nature and of nature's God by the supreme judge of the world, and that um, our so-called rights are not the product of random uh, randomness, meaningless evolution. They are not the, per the product of uh, social, arbitrary social convention, but that rights are the product of intelligent design. You can't teach that in a public school. And you cannot teach that deism is false. You cannot teach that we can have a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. And I've got a page on my KevinCraig.us website on providence which has quotations from a, a lot of founding fathers not a single deist signed the constitution in the sense of a person who believed in a clockmaker god an uninvolved god a god who created and walked away from the universe they all believed that god miraculously intervened and altered what would otherwise be the natural course of history and gave america victory over the british now that's a confused from a pacifist perspective, that's a confused view. But they did believe in providence, and providence is the opposite of deism. Deism is a God who does not answer prayer, does not engage in supernatural intervention, and does not afford anyone a firm reliance on his protection, which is purposeful and loving. That's not a purposeful and loving intervention in history, miraculously, is not the view of a deist. Not a single deist signed the Constitution. However, I think... Uh, I think as a Christian, I can question whether they were correct in their belief that God did, in fact, intervene in a, in a 
in a purposeful and loving way by by rendering their arms effective, uh, to quote Samuel Adams. Um, I think that from a biblical perspective, the American Revolution was contrary to Christian ethics, contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. The New Testament does not say that if the government imposes a tax of three pence per pound of tea, that you have a right to engage in an act of vandalism. Uh, and, and when the government sends redcoats, just like Rome sent centurions to Israel, uh, Jesus said if the, a centurion orders you to do something that violates your rights, he didn't say take up your musket. He said if they command you to take their backpack for a mile, you should go ahead and carry it an extra mile. So Jesus' ethics were totally anti-revolutionary. And I think the American Revolution was a violation of Christian ethics. Let me throw on a little anecdote here on the American okay. Revolution. And I agree with you that a great deal of the American Revolution was uh, not motivated out of proper Christian intent. Uh, I also, coming across and actually studying individual battles, what they call battles in uh, the American Revolution, I was amazed that the number of battles that took place where nobody died, um, the taking of Fort uh, uh, Ticonderoga. Nobody actually died in the taking of that fort, except they there was one big cannon that was so big they couldn't move it, so they were going to blow it up by filling it with gunpowder and so nobody could use it, and stuffing the opening with uh, clay and everything, and then they set the cannon off to blow it up, and somebody looked around the corner of the building, and he, he, he was killed by the shrapnel when the cannon went off, but other than that, nobody died in the taking of that fort. Numerous forts along the uh, frontier were taken, and they specifically, they fired on the fort for days and days, but nobody was killed because they were only firing into uh, the log pylons and hitting them, kind of showing their marksmanship, but they weren't actually killing them. Even uh, uh, some of the other battles, now there were certainly battles where lots of people died, uh, but uh, I think there was something else going on there. Only about a third of the Americans were standing their ground uh, against uh, what was tyranny. Uh, they did have muskets in hand, uh, but their argument was not to actually revolt against the government. If you read the Declaration of Independence carefully, their uh, explanation was that the king was already violating his authority, that the American Republic existed back in 1619, and it existed because men started to take on the responsibility to govern themselves and not be governed by a, a central king or power, and uh, that the king was usurping authority that he did not have. Uh, for at least uh, 30 percent of the Americans that were here, and it was only about 30 percent that were actually for this so-called revolution. But listening to what you had to say, uh, I agree that taking up arms, uh, generally speaking, is not the answer and the solution. That's what I kind of tried to uh, pre uh, preface this concept of pacifism that uh, Christ didn't tell them to throw away your sword, but to put it away. Uh, 
but by the same token, it's very clear that the apostles were, their policy was to take a blow rather than give a blow. Uh, but let me put, create a situation where, you know, I actually believe that if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, you can stop evil from abusing the innocent and killing and murdering, even by yourself, much less with a group. Uh, because like I said, I've been in the middle of riots and, uh, totally unharmed, totally unattacked while other guys go there, uh, and they get all beat up. I've, I've actually dealt this with Southern policemen back in the 60s, <laughs> where the uh, friends I know who went to the same communities ended up leaving teeth behind. I ended up getting treated to donuts. <laughs> so <laughs> what was the difference? I, I believe that the spirit that you walk with will actually give you protection. But what would the pacifist do if he saw four or five guys beating up on some weak and innocent person? Would he ever use force to stop those individuals from uh, continuing what will apparently end in murder uh, or not? Well, that's a, that's a good question, and uh, there are two answers. One is an immediate answer, and then the second is a more cultural answer. The immediate answer is, um, yeah, I would say if I, saw, if I saw five guys beating up one innocent person, I would do whatever I could to stop them. I would, I would grab their fists and keep them from striking the next blow. Um, you know, obviously, it would be better if I had five guys with me, we would stand a better chance of being successful, but I think it would be a, a, an obligation of me to try to prevent a violent act from taking place. And that's the definition of a pacifist. The word pacifism comes from the, from the Latin word for peace. It's simply as someone who opposes violence and wants to prevent violence. The, the critical issue, though, is some people would just say the first thing you do is just blow their brains out, you know, pull out your gun and, 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 and nuke them. You can, you can see this, for example, if you imagine that you had one of Captain Kirk's phasers from the Starship Enterprise. Uh, and I don't know any pacifist who would have any objection to using your phaser set on stun to, uh, you know, anesthetize an attacker. But there's absolutely no rational basis or reason for setting your phaser for complete molecular obliteration and killing the guy. And that usually is the big issue between a pacifist and a, a, an anti-pacifist. The anti-pacifist boastfully says, you know, he would just start out with lethal force. The pacifist says there are quite a few options prior to lethal force that you could use to try to stop an attack, prevent violent, a violent attack from happening. Now, in the bigger picture, why is it that this attack is taking place? It could be because the Supreme Court of the federal government has said that public school teachers cannot teach children that God says thou shalt not kill, or cannot teach public school students that God says thou shalt not steal. And that's, a, I think, a big reason why our culture seems to be plagued by more crime and more acts of violence than our society was 200 years ago. And it's the ironic thing is that America's founding fathers, despite the fact that after they overthrew the British government using violence and then created another government of their own that I think turned out to be even worse than the British government that they overthrew, they recognized very plainly that they did not want a government that was so strong that it was capable of contending with crime and criminals who were not 
bound down by religion and morality. As John Adams put it, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Well, if you can't teach morality and religion, then that's why the Constitution doesn't work. And so the, the, the pacifist says, on the one hand, I'm not going to just start out with lethal force, but I am going to try to uh, persuade or you know, stand between an attacker and a victim. But on the other hand, I have to criticize the archists of the government for prohibiting the teaching of religion and morality. Even if the Supreme Court, well, Justice William Douglas, uh, in the uh, 1962 or 1963 case, which removed prayer and, and Bible from the public schools, he admitted that America's founding fathers believed that the teaching of religion and morality was the primary purpose of public schools. But that's why they created public schools, was primarily to teach religion and morality. Religion and morality means you don't kill, you don't steal, you don't engage in acts of violence. So the pacifist says, I think, the, the finger has to be pointed first at the government for creating crime by destroying religion and morality. But, yes, a pacifist is against evil and therefore uses a number of different strategies to try to prevent evil and violent acts from taking place. And a good book was written by a man named uh, um, Yoder, Y-O-D-E-R. It's called What Would You Do If? And it's a, a, a collection of pacifists who, just like you described, an example of where a violent situation exists and yet it seems like God and the Spirit protects certain people. That's not always the case of course, but it, it is the case that there are a number of things that we can do short of lethal violence to de-escalate violence instead of escalating it. And that book, What Would You Do, is uh, that's, the, that's the classic question. And always pacifists ask this, well, what would you do if, and then they give you some kind of improbable violent scenario. I mean, the, 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 the situation you just described, here's, here's a violent act taking place. How many people actually see a violent act like that taking place. Most people don't. And yet most people um, affirm and vote for a, a system of perpetual, continual, intensive, global, widespread violence and militarism as, a, as an instrument that supposedly protects us from these little violent acts that we hardly ever see actually taking place. Right. Um, we, we have, uh, uh, the government takes a thousand times more money through a system called asset forfeiture than bank robbers do. And yet we, we, we're so concerned about the little acts of violence, the little bank robbers, that we allow this huge institutionalized octopus with its tentacles everywhere, tentacles of violence and militarism, and it's just, it's not rational. Right. Uh, one of the things uh, that we pointed out recently, and I, I pointed out at the pastor's conference, was that uh, hue and cry is not heard in America anymore. When somebody is being injured or attacked, and it does happen, I actually know of many, many cases. And uh, One fellow was uh, came upon a broad day kidnapping by an absolute total stranger of a young girl who was being dragged into a car, Dozens of people on the street, people looking out their windows, and nobody did anything. He actually walked up to the individual who was dragging this girl into his car in broad daylight in the middle of Los Angeles in a good neighborhood. <laughs> and he thought, am I on candid camera? Are they filming a movie? What is this? Because he saw nobody doing anything. 
And he was able to walk up right behind the guy and reached over and simply tapped him on the shoulder to ask what's going on. Uh, he was actually, he said he was, as he was walking up, he was looking for the cameras. He thought this was a movie. He couldn't believe it was really happening. When the man turned around and actually saw somebody who actually spoke to him, walked up to him, he said he screamed a shriek, leaped into the car and drove away. The girl fell to this guy's legs, uh, feet, sobbing, just uh, trembling, because she she did never seen this guy before. He just grabbed her and was dragging her off into his car. And then the bystanders, who had been watching this guy walk up, saw the whole thing, yelled out, "What are you doing to that girl, Doc?" <laughs> Which we thought was a strange behavior, but the reality is, if we were teaching. Not in our public schools, but in our home schools and in our community schools, uh, because that's what public schools used to be. That's another thing is the term public school. Public schools before 1840 were, generally speaking, supported by the local community, mostly through voluntary offerings. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and they were called public because they were open to everybody, not just a membership. But they were not supported by taxation. But anyway... Uh, if we were teaching love thy neighbor as thyself, we might hear that hewing cry. And if we had that hewing cry from men filled with the Holy Spirit, we would not have the violence that we have in the world today. But what we have seen is when God called it a rejection of him in uh, Samuel 8, that if you elect a leader who can exercise authority, call him king, president, prime minister, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get a military-industrial complex. He's going to make his instruments of war. He's going to take your sons and daughters, and he's going to turn them for his own purpose, and that's exactly where we are today. And it's not because we're poor Christians. It's because we've all rejected God. We say we love Christ, but in reality, we would not have the world we have today if everyone professing to be a Christian was actually doing what Christ said. But anyway, we are only got about three minutes left of the show, so I'm going to let Kevin... Uh, one thing I want to encourage Kevin is to be a part of our network. I think he would be a great asset. Um, and uh, be in touch with the other guys that we know in Missouri and, and that community. Maybe they can be of service to you, and that's what we're looking for. Uh, anybody else uh, uh, that you want to connect with us, uh, that would be great. Uh, this is all voluntary. There's no charge. Uh, all the books are available for free. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to give Kevin the last word. If he has any advice or anything that he would like to encourage our listeners uh, to get to know him better or what he has to offer, uh, I'm going to give him, until the last few seconds of the show, the floor. So it's yours, Kevin. Well, I would certainly like to be in contact with your network. I'm, I'm really not familiar with uh, everything you've got going on, but it sounds very interesting, and I really would like to, you know, come to become acquainted with people of like mind. I think the example you gave is just really powerful. Um, most Americans uh, do not want to accept personal responsibility and take some initiative in the face of violence. That, that, and they would rather institutionalize atheist vengeance. 
Right. Uh, there's a whole change in mindset, and talking about these words is just the beginning. I want to thank Craig, thank Paul for being there, and we'll see you next week. God bless. Thanks, Kevin. Yep. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.